and gentlemen, in your lifetime and in my lifetime, we have gone all the way in the culture from Madonna singing Papa Don't Preach into the churches and the churches are saying preachers don't preach. The time will come when they will have itching ears and they will turn their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables myths. But Paul gives a word concerning apostasy and with a note of urgency he says to the young preacher, Preach the word! That's what God wants the preacher to do in this day. It is a privilege and honor to be here. We thank the Lord for it. Congratulations, prayers, and best wishes are mine for these graduates. We just thank God for you. Would you stand with me now for just a moment? I want you to concentrate on one verse of Scripture as the basis for our message this morning. In Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. The Lord will add his blessings to this, his precious word. Thank you so much. You may be seated. I like this verse. I like it also because the grammatical construction is such that you could read it this way, that I may know him, that I may know the power of his resurrection, that I may know the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. I want to use for my text and subject this morning just five words out of this tenth verse of the third chapter Philippians. The fellowship of his sufferings. The fellowship of his sufferings. I'm sure that if we're going to try to take time to consider the sufferings of the Lord Jesus, a series of messages would not even touch the hem of the garment. But that's not really the theme of the message. It's the fellowship of his sufferings. But by way of introduction to this meditation this morning, I'd like you to think with me for just a few moments about some of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. I fear many times that we think those sufferings began only in Gethsemane or Calvary. But surely long before there was a Gethsemane or a Calvary, the Lord Jesus suffered much in order that you and I might have salvation, that we might become the sons and the daughters of God. In my mind, I've tried to think about what must have happened in heaven when the Lord Jesus was ready to leave glory to come down here to the earth. My finite brain is not able to comprehend what kind of sufferings must have been involved. But looking at it, humanly speaking, I think of maybe the time in your own life when you went down to a bus station or down to the railroad depot or down to the airport to see a loved one, a husband, a son, a daughter, a sweetheart or a friend to go away into the armed services. And of course, you're uh, hurting on the inside, as Amy Carmichael used to say, when you have those kind of partings, it's like pulling flesh from flesh. You stood there and you smiled and you said to that one, you're going to be the best one that Uncle Sam has in his armed services. I'm sure oh, everything's going to go wonderfully. But down in your heart, there was the lingering thought, this loved one may die on foreign soil. And there's a suffering that uh, only those who've experienced it know of what I'm speaking at this time. And surely, beloved, when they came down to the portals of glory and the Lord Jesus was coming to this sin-cursed world, there was not a thought that he may die on foreign soil. 
And that's what it's all about. He's leaving glory to come to make it possible that hell-deserving sinners like you and me might become the sons and the daughters of God. When he arrived here on earth, there was suffering from the word go. I do not understand what suffering must have been involved for God himself to condescend uh, to become a human being, but certainly there were sufferings there, no doubt, and he did just that. He walked here on the earth as the poorest of the men. He went into a ministry, beloved, and there were sufferings from the word go. Sometimes I hear preachers talking about how much they've given up and how much they've suffered for the Lord. I think that's a shame that any preacher would mention such a thing in the light of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus in his ministry. None of us have suffered, period, in contrast to how the Son of God suffered. In his ministry, they were suspicious of him. They lied about him. They called him an upstart. They called him a devil. This business of laughing at the virgin birth didn't begin in the 1900s, beloved. When you read in the scriptures of their saying, Is he not the son of Joseph? Surely there was sarcasm about the irregular birth of the precious son of God. Yes, one of his own disciples cursed and swore and claimed that he didn't even know him. One of his disciples sold him for 30 pieces of silver, $16.81 in your money and mine. Yes, beloved, when he went to preach in his own hometown, they would have cast him over a cliff if he had not walked out of their midst. He preached one of his sermons one day, and the crowds left. Everybody went away but twelve, and he said, Are you going to leave also? No preacher here ever suffered any such thing as that. All the sufferings of the Son of God in his ministry, misunderstood even of his own family, we read in John's Gospel how that uh, his brothers and sisters said, If you're the smi Messiah, why don't you make yourself known? Why are you going around so quietly and so, un so unobtrusively? They're very suspicious of him. When I read the epistle of James and know that this was a half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was an unbeliever through the Lord's ministry, and so far as I'm concerned, the only unbeliever to whom Jesus appeared after the resurrection, and evidently it was then that James got saved. Must have been some revelation to find out your own half-brother was Almighty God incarnated in human flesh. Oh, how the Lord Jesus suffered. That night when he came in the upper room with him for the Last Supper, uh, they were arguing about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom. The Lord Jesus knew that Calvary was only a few hours ahead. How he must have suffered as he washed the feet of these whom he loved unto the end, says the Scriptures in John 13. The sufferings of the precious Savior. Oh, think of them, beloved, in the trials, time forbids. We could go into some twelve illegal procedures they followed in order to rush the Lord Jesus to Calvary. See him as they bring him to the whipping post. In those days they'd strip him to the waist and tie him in a taunt-like position around the whipping post, and the soldiers would get back with the, with the cat of nine tails. It's a whip with a handle about so long, nine leather thongs extending from the, those handles studded with bits of stone and bone and lead, and on the bare back, tied in a taunt-like position around that whipping post, they'd lay on the lash. If you multiply nine times thirty-nine, you'll know how many times those leather thongs came down on the precious body of the Son of God. They tell us, beloved, that all the skin would come off with the very first stroke. Many times the entrails would come out the back, and the prisoners would die on the whipping post. He was so beaten so torn, so bruised, so mauled, that you couldn't even tell that he was a man. 
But praise God for such a Savior who is willing to suffer so much for an old hell-deserving sinner like you and me. I'm amazed that he'd love me enough to save me. And I'm far more amazed that he'd ever trust me enough to use me. But oh, thank God for the suffering Son of God. They took him down from the whipping post. They beat him over the head with rods. They pulled out his beard with their hands. They blindfolded him. They slapped him with their palms. They pummeled him with their fists. And they said, if you be the Christ, prophesy who it is that smote thee. Yea, beloved, they gave him that cross. First, of course, they jammed the crown of thorns on his brow that pierced every square inch of his scalp. They gave him that cross. Those crosses weighed approximately 250 pounds to bear away to Golgotha's hill. The upright piece weighed 175 to 180. Uh, the transverse piece, they weighed anywhere from 70 to 75 pounds. The Savior had been up all night, had little food the day before, a long, hard day. He was a strong-bodied one, but had been beaten and torn and bruised so much. The tradition says that he fell beneath the load as he carried the cross to Golgotha's hill. And we have no reason to doubt tradition because the book says that for some reason, on the way to Golgotha's hill, they had to summon somebody to carry the cross for him. It was placed on that cross about nine o'clock that fearful, memorable Wednesday morning. Your time and mine. He was there for seven hours. He gave seven sayings. That's uh, two, two sevens. Seven's the number for God, the ultimate number. Two of them. That's a number of testimony. Calvary is God's testimony for perfect redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there in those seven hours on Calvary, the Lord Jesus suffered. Oh, between twelve noon and three in the afternoon, there was utter and outer darkness over the face of the earth. Surely the darkness that typifies the darkness in the charred walls of the dam in the lake of fire and brimstone. There he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You could read it, My God, my God, why hast thou totally abandoned me while I am down under and in the midst of hostile circumstances? And that's hell, beloved. The liberal theologians say that the Lord Jesus uh, did not, uh, was not really forsaken. He just felt forsaken. That's a lot of hogwash, beloved. He was totally abandoned. Totally abandoned because God made him sin. He didn't bear our sins. We sing that he bore our sins. We pray. I mean, we preach that he bore our sins. We teach that he bore our sins. We testify that he bore our sins. He didn't. He became sin for us. And God damned our sins in his own precious son on Calvary's cross. He suffered all hell for all sins, for all sinners. The hell they would have suffered forever in the lake of fire and brimstone. Concentrated in those short hours on Calvary's cross. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What a Savior. Yes, we could go on and on, but uh, I, I simply want to mention these by way of introduction. When the Apostle Paul said that I may know him, he was already saved. Oh, he wanted to know him better. Oh, beloved, whole lifetime we, we lack so much in knowing him. But we're going to get to know him through all eternity and we'll really know him then. And that I may know the fellowship of his sufferings. Certainly the Apostle Paul was not speaking of the substitutionary atoning sufferings of the Lord Jesus on Calvary when he said that I may know the fellowship of his sufferings. 
You see, beloved, you and I cannot know the fellowship of his sufferings at Calvary, the substitutionary, atoning sufferings, except as benefactors. That's the only way we can know it. We know the joy, the peace, the everlasting life that's ours because of the sufferings at Calvary. But we cannot fellowship with those substitutionary uh, atoning sufferings. If I die, it's just another dead sinner. If you die, it's just another dead sinner. He's the only one who could die. The sinless, stainless Son of God, Almighty God incarnated in human flesh. He's the only one who could die that our sins could be forgiven. Back in university days, uh, I was only saved three weeks when I started to the university. Just a young babe in Christ and some of the intelligentsia, question mark after the word, uh, used to say, James, I don't accept this theology that you preach, that uh, that the innocent was forced to die for the guilty. I, uh, I don't accept that. I, I believe it's wrong for the innocent to be forced to die for the guilty. And there I was, a young Christian. I didn't know what to answer, but I went back home. And when I was praying that night, the Lord brought this thought to my mind, son, it is wrong to force the innocent to die for the guilty. But it's all right for the innocent to volunteer to die for the guilty. And that's what happened at Calvary. The sinless, stainless Son of God volunteered to die for our sins that we could become his sons and his daughters. But that's not the fellowship of which Paul's talking as he said that I may know the fellowship of his suffering. There are three areas, though, beloved, in which we can enter into the fellowship of the Lord Jesus' suffering. First, we can enter the fellowship of his suffering in the sense of sin. The Lord Jesus suffered in the presence of sin. Sin violates the divine order. It despoils, it spoils the divine purpose. And the Lord Jesus suffered in the presence of sin. Discord hurts the musician. Disproportion wounds the artistic temperament. The Son of God suffered in the very presence of sin. Do you suffer in the presence of sin? Do I suffer in the presence of sin? I fear, beloved, that you and I are so close to it that it's become commonplace many times in the lives of children of God. But the Savior suffered in the very presence of sin. Now, if I walk in the Spirit, I too will suffer in the presence of sin. If I walk in the flesh, I'll become anger and angry and bitter and get the devil in me trying to get the devil out of somebody else. And we have that. God help us. Some preachers get the devil in them trying to get the devil out of the congregation. That's just the devil in the whole crowd. Some parents get the devil in them trying to get the devil out of the children. That's just the devil in the whole family. But oh, to walk in close fellowship with Christ. We suffer in the presence of sin and we love sinners. Sometimes I fear that we fundamental Bible-believing Christians have gotten so separated that we're actually inaccessible to sinners. I fear sometimes that in our hatred for sin, we started hating sinners. But I'm one of those preachers who believes that Jesus loves sinners. I'm so glad he did. If he didn't, I'd never gotten saved. I'm glad that he loves sinners. 
Oh, beloved, you and I need to hate sin, but we need to love sinners. And we can do that as we walk in fellowship with his sufferings because he suffered in the presence of sin. Somebody says, but Brother James, I'll tell you, we ought to hate sin. Amen. But you never hated sin like Jesus did. And you and I have never thus far loved sinners like Jesus did. But that's what was in the heart of the Apostle Paul as he said that I may know him, that I may know the fellowship of his sufferings. He suffered in the presence of sin. Down here in Belton, South Carolina, a few years ago, there was a man and woman got married, lived together for five years. They were lost, unsaved, hell-bound sinners. Drinking, carousing, doing all the things that sinners normally do. But one Sunday night, that little woman stopped in a little Baptist church down in Belton and heard the gospel preached. Came forward and accepted the Lord Jesus as a personal Savior. She went home just bubbling over, telling her husband the joy and the peace that she had and that her sins were forgiven. And she was just on cloud eleven. He gave a frown and said, well, I guess now you won't be going to the parties with me. Oh, she said, no, honey, if you only knew the joy that I have in Christ. He's forgiven me for those sins, and, and I'm having no more part with those. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. This made him very angry, and he began to curse her and abuse her. Oh, for some two years, he'd come in drunk and beat her with a broom handle, yank her out of the bed by the hair of the head, curse her, abuse her in every way. And she simply let Christ radiate his life through her life, even to this drunkard husband. In fact, uh, the neighbor lady said, you know, I often wondered when we were hanging out our clothes across the fence from each other, uh, why there'd be big blue marks or black marks on her arms and her neck and her legs. And she said, I, I never felt free to ask her, but she said, one night about 3 a.m. I heard screaming and, and I raised the shade on my window and it's just across the fence from her bedroom window and her shade was not drawn. And I saw her drunken husband come in with his drunken cronies. Yank his wife out of the bed by the hair of the head, beat her with a broom handle and yell, woman, get up and cook us some good beefsteak, biscuits and gravy. The next day, the dear lady said, as we were hanging out our clothes, I saw all those blue and black marks again. And that reminded me of the past. And I knew now for the first time what it was all about. She said, I said, uh, Miss So-and-so, I... I really wasn't trying to eavesdrop, but I heard the screaming and the cursing at three this morning. And I raised my shade, and your shade was not drawn, and I see what your, I saw what your husband did. She said, if I had a husband like you have, I'd brain him. And the little lady said, you don't understand. Seven years ago, we got married. Neither one of us knew the Lord. Five years, we lived like that, and two years ago, Jesus saved me. And she said, you know, it occurred to me, John doesn't even know anything about what heaven's like and he's never going to go there. If I could just do something to, to help him see how, uh, who Jesus is and what it's like to belong to Jesus, maybe he'd want to go to heaven. And she said, that's the reason I don't fight back. That's the reason I just go on and be sweet to him and pray for him, that he might be brought to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Having told you that, are you surprised when I tell you this six months later? One Sunday morning in that little church there in Belton, Sunday school was over and folk were gathering for the morning service. The little lady was sitting down in the second seat where she always sat. And John, uh, the drunken, 
uh, wife-beating man came in, sat on the back seat of the church. One usher told another. They sent the word to the pastor, and everybody was uh, abuzz. Hey, John's here. Pray for him to get saved today. The pastor stood and preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus. He gave an invitation. The man ran down the aisle. He fell on the pastor's shoulder, began to cry like a child. He said, Preacher, I want to be saved. I want to be saved. And down to their knees they went, and he accepted the Lord. And as they stood, the pastor, with pride in his heart, like we preachers sometimes get it, when somebody comes forward because of our preaching, I mean, because we thought it was because of our preaching. And he said, now, John, just tell the congregation what it was that I said this morning that caused you to make the decision to accept Christ. Oh, he said, pardon me, preacher, I, I didn't hear anything you said. I'm sorry, preacher. I didn't hear anything you said this morning. He said, it's because of that little woman sitting right there. That's why I'm here this morning. He said, I've seen the reality of Jesus Christ in her for some two and a half years, and I, I can't stand it anymore. I want to belong to him. She had, entered, she had entered into the fellowship of the Lord's sufferings. Yes, the fellowship of his sufferings in the presence of sin. We have a good Bible uh, picture of the same thing there in the prophecy of Hosea. God said to this country preacher, and that's what Hosea was, a country preacher. He said, I want you to marry a harlot. You know, it's sad for anybody to be married to a harlot. But what about a preacher being married to a harlot? Oh, now I know over cemetery, I mean seminary, they say, well, that, that couldn't be. That's unethical. Hosea is not true. Hosea is true, beloved. Yes. And I believe it just like an eight-year-old boy would believe it when they, he read it. Jesus said, that, uh, God said, and that was Jesus, that Jehovah's the Old Testament is the Jesus of the New Testament. Amen. said, I want you to marry a, a woman of whoredoms. That's just a plain prostitute. Beloved. And he married her. And oh, how he must have suffered. God said, Israel is the wife of Jehovah, and she's acted like uh, she's acted like a prostitute. She's acted uh, like an unfaithful wife. She's gone after her lovers. But God said, I'm going to woo and win her back to the bosom of her own husband. And I want you, Hosea, to be an example. I'm going to let you marry a harlot. And, and when she runs after her lovers, I'm going to let you so love her that she'll be won back to the bosom of her own husband. That's what the whole thing's about. And he married her. Gomer had children by her preacher husband. But between the time that her preacher husband's children were born, she gave birth to children by other, other men. Beloved. What a horrible, horrible situation. She'd go out and wouldn't be home at night. I wonder how old Hosea's heart must have suffered as the children would say, Daddy, how come Mama don't come home? The day came when she sold her body to a house of prostitution and didn't come home, period. God said, I'll put a love in your heart, Hosea, for that woman that'll woo her and win her back to the bosom of her own husband. You and I'll have to admit that's not a natural love, men. It had to be God's love that was placed in that preacher's heart. The day came, the day came when she was to be sold and they'd sell those, those women on slaves. Fifteen pieces of silver must have been the price. It seems to have been a kind of a standard price, I do not know. 
Jesus' day, he, common slaves were sold for 30 pieces of silver. That's what Judas charged to betray the Lord Jesus with. Just 15 pieces of silver for a prostitute. I wonder, as, and they would bring them out nude to sell them so that those lustful men could see what they were getting. There, Goma stands on the sail block. I wonder what she thought when she looked out, saw her preacher husband present. I wonder, Brother Harold, if she thought he's here to make fun of me, to try to make it hard as he can. I don't know. But if she did, she was in for a great surprise. Because when they started bidding, her preacher husband started bidding for her. I've often wondered as I read there in the prophecy of Hosea that, uh, that if maybe someone uh, spoke up so quickly, Hosea hadn't had time to make a bid and, and offered the 15 pieces of silver. The reason I think that is because Hosea spoke up and he offered 15 pieces of silver and he said, I'll also give a, an omer and a half omer of barley along with the 15 pieces of silver. Was the 15 pieces a pr normal price? And he wondered so bad, he said, I'd, I'd throw in an omer and a half of barley if I may have her. And he bought his own wife. I see him come to that platform and pull off his own robe and put it around. And I see him going away. And I hear him say, honey, we're going to get you new clothes. Going to get you new clothes. And, and I told the children to, to, fix, to fix the best supper and to clean the house that Mama's coming home tonight. Oh, hey. They must have had a wonderful time in the country preacher's home that night. Mama came home because Dad, Dad had learned to enter into the fellowship of the Lord's sufferings. He suffered in the presence of sin. Oh, beloved, that you and I might learn to enter into the fellowship of the Lord Jesus' sufferings. George Matheson was engaged to a beautiful woman to be married. He began to have some trouble with his eyes and he went to the doctor. The doctor said, you're going blind in less than six months and you'll be permanently blind. George Matheson walked away from the doctor's office, disturbed greatly, thinking of the beautiful woman to whom he was engaged and saying, well, when I proposed to her, I was not, I was not blind. I ought at least to offer her the privilege of breaking the engagement if she doesn't want to be married to a blind man, hoping, of course, that she say, oh no, that doesn't matter, George, that'll be all right. But that isn't what she said. Oh, when he told her, she said, well, thank you. I never want to be married to a blind man. Yes, I, I, I like to break the engagement. With a broken heart, George Matheson left her home. And later he wrote, oh, love that will not let me go. I arrest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow. May richer, fuller be. Oh, beloved, we can enter in the fellowship of the Lord's sufferings in the sense that he suffered in the presence of sin. I wonder what had happened, graduates. I wonder what had happened, uh, visitors. I wonder what had happened, members of the Baptist Tabernacle. I wonder what had happened if we began to enter into the fellowship of the Lord Jesus' sufferings in the sense that we suffer in the presence of sin, but that we love sinners. The second place, I believe that Paul not only had in mind the sufferings of the Lord Jesus in the presence of sin, but I believe in the second place that he had in mind the fact that the Lord Jesus suffered when he saw men misrepresent God to other men. He suffered. 
He suffered. There were the Pharisees. There were the Sadducees. There were the scribes. There were the zealots. There were the Herodians. There uh, they were group after group after group. And they misrepresented God to other men. And the Lord Jesus suffered when he saw men misrepresent God to other men. Oh, stern words, the sternest words that ever fell from his lips. Surely you read there in the 23rd chapter of Matthew's gospel, but did you ever notice how he closed the sermon? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you as a hen gathered their chickens, and you would not. The scriptures indicated that he wept when he did it. Surely he wept even when he spoke so sternly and so harshly to those men who misrepresented God to other men. He suffered. He suffered when he saw men misrepresent God to other men. We have them all around us. The cults, the Jim Joneses, the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Roman Catholics, oh, you can go all down a long list, beloved. The Armstrongs, misrepresenting God to other men. And you and I may have a tendency to think we'll just hit one of them on the head and half kill it. No, God will save them too if they'll repent and come just like we did. When I was in the university, I used to have students say to me and professors to say to me, when you talk about the precious blood of Christ, it's putrid and abominable in my thinking. There are a bunch of liberal theologians on the road to hell. They were a bunch of folk misrepresenting God to other folk. Somebody said, Brother James, how in the world did you go to university like that and come out believing the Bible? Beloved, you can't make a liberal theologian out of one that's born again. Don't you let somebody tell you that some born-again blood-washed believer turned out to be a liberal theologian. He never was born again or washed in the blood. You can't make a liberal theologian out of that kind of a guy. You can't do it. Oh, no. But God will even save a liberal theologian. If he'll come just like you and I did, as poor, lost, no good, hell-bound sinners, and believe the virgin-born Son of God died a substitutionary atoning death and arose bodily from the grave, and he saves every sinner who repents as a sinner. Trust him. Save him, Lord. Yes, he'd save a Catholic. He'd save a, he'd save a Jehovah's Witness. He'd save a Mormon. He'd save a liberal theologian. So far as I'm concerned, the neo-Orthodox and the neo-evangelicals and the liberal theologians, the same traitor in a different coat. <laughs> but he'd save one of them if they'll come just like the rest of us. Okay. Lost no good sinners. Receive the Lord Jesus as Savior. I was in seminary with one of those liberal theologians. Praise God, he got saved. I wouldn't even tell you who he is because today he's a firebrand for Christ across the countryside. But he used to laugh at us slaughterhouse religionists who believe that you have to have the blood of Christ if you get your sins washed away. I'll tell you a story. I'll not use the names. I'll call them Bill and Tom, but that is not their real names. They're both liberal theologians in one of our southern towns making fun of those folk who, who believe the Bible is the word of God. 
And I believe it is, beloved. I believe if I got a telegram from heaven this morning, I wouldn't have the Word of God anymore, and I got it right here in this book. I believe the Bible's the infallible, inerrant Word of God. But these fellows made fun of that kind of preaching. They made fun of anybody that believed that Christ's death had anything to do with saving. I wrote a paper once in university telling the professor how I became a Christian. I said, through the shed blood of Jesus on Calvary. He wrote red letters all in my paper and said, what does the blood of Christ have to do with you? Nothing. Oh, it has everything to do with me. It's through his blood that I got saved. Through his blood that I got my sins washed away. Well, these two preachers were in the southern town. We'll call them Bill and Tom to close the one of the services one Sunday night when Bill had just read his, uh, his lecture. One well, of the ushers came and said, there's a little ragged girl out here in the vestibule. She wants you to help get her mama in. I don't know where she's out drunk or something or what. So uh, the preacher walked back. Uh, Bill, by my designation, said, little lady, what do you want? She said, are you the preacher man? He said, yes, I'm the minister. Well, she said, my mama wants a preacher man to come have her get in. Why, he said, little lady, she's out in the rain somewhere. Uh, maybe we get to get police. She ain't out in no rain, preacher man. She's home. She wants you to help her get in. I'll tell you the rest of the story as Bill told it to Tom two weeks later he said you know Tom I don't know what to do maybe some drunk I just didn't know but he said you know I took a chance and so I went with the little ragged girl and we went down the alley and finally we got to uh, one two three stories and then the attic above three stories in a very terrible section of town uh, there was this little girl's mama lying on a mattress and he said, when I shook hands with her, she was burning with fever. And I realized she was a sick woman. And he said, Tom, uh, she said, are you a preacher man? Uh, he said, uh, yeah, I'm the minister. Well, well, she said, preacher man, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner woman. And it looks like my time here on earth is just about gone. Could you tell me how to get in heaven? Well, Tom laughed and said, Bill, what did you tell her? Well, he said, I, I quoted her all these poems you, you and I have been using in our manuscripts. But he said, she looked at me and said, Preacher, man, you seem kind of dumb. That's pretty poetry, but that don't have anything to do with me. I'm a sinner woman. How do sinners get to heaven? Tom laughed. He said, well, Bill, what did you do? Well, he said, I, I quoted the 23rd Psalm. He said, well, what happened? He said, well, she said, Preacher, man, you sure are dumb. That's about a little lamb, and I ain't no lamb. I'm a sinner woman. How do sinner women get to heaven? Tom laughed again. Well, Bill, what'd you do? Well, he said, Bill, you're going to laugh more. <laughs> he said, uh, I mean, Tom, you're going to laugh more. He said, you see, Tom, my mama had a different theology than you and I do. I got to think of what my mama do. She's there. She's already dead. And I got to think, what would she do? She's there and that sinner woman saying she won't go to heaven. He said, I thought, you know, mama would say, in Isaiah 53, 6, the Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Tom was quiet, and Bill went on. He said to Tom, she looked up at me and said, Preacher, does that mean Jesus died for me? <laughs> he said, that's what it means. He said, you see, Tom, I was just telling her what Mama would have said. <laughs> I wanted to see if it worked. My poetry didn't work. <laughs> and he said, uh, I said, yes, Jesus substituted for you. He took your punishment, and if you receive him, he'll cleanse you from your sins, and you can get in.
And by now, tears were streaming down Bill's face. Tom didn't laugh. He just looked over and said, uh, Well, well uh, Bill, did you get her in? He said, Yes, Tom. And I went too. I went too. I went too. Praise God, Jesus had saved the liberal theologian just like he saves the rest of us. If you'll come to him as lost, no good, hell-deserving sinner and accept his substitutionary work on Calvary's cross. But I must hurry. There's a third way, I believe, in which we can enter into the fellowship of his suffering. First, we suffer in the presence of sin like he did, but we love the sinners who are bound by sin. Second, we suffer when we see other folk misrepresent God to men. They're all around us, beloved. But thank God he'll save no good sinners like them too if they'll come like we came. Third, the Lord Jesus suffered as he looked at man and his failure and realized his destiny. He looked at men and women in their lost condition. And of course, he knew that their destiny was hell. And the Lord Jesus suffered. Do you and I suffer as we see men and women going around us by the thousands these days and realize they're going to go to hell if they don't come to know Christ as saving Lord? They tell us that George Whitfield would stand on the street corner and as folk went by, tears would come in his eyes and he'd say, I wonder if they've ever been born again. I wonder. Our old hearts can get so cold. They can get cold in school, fellas, ladies. You can backslide right at the institute. You can backslide and be in church every Sunday if you lose your compassion for lost men and women. The Lord Jesus suffered as he looked at men in their failure and realized they're going to go to hell forever. He knew all about it. Oh, there's some folk who deny hell, but hell's a place. You're in denial, won't do away with it. Had a man down in Natchez I was seeking to lead to the Lord, and I said, uh, he'd, uh, he'd written me, and, I mean, he called me and asked me to come tell him about how to be saved. And I said, well, you have to come to Jesus as a lost, no good sinner on the road to hell and, and let him save you. He said, don't even believe there's a hell. His name was Miller. I said, well, Mr. Miller, that doesn't do away with hell because you don't believe in I said, I was over in Minneapolis recently preaching and, and went out to lunch one day with a bunch of preachers and one of the preachers said to me, uh, Brother James, where did you say you're from? And I said, Natchez, Mississippi. Why, he said, I never heard of the place. Another one of the preachers said, I don't think there is such a place. I think Brother James is just putting us on. Now I said, Mr. Miller, because some dumb cluck over in Minneapolis doesn't believe there's a Natchez, Mississippi. We're down here just as usual. <laughs> Because somebody doesn't believe there's a hell that doesn't do away with it, it's a place. Amen. Jesus knows it's a place. Jesus in his perfect ministry had far more to say about hell than he ever had to say about heaven. Oh, that we could enter into fellowship with the sufferings of the Son of God. As we look at men and women, remember they're going to go to hell forever if they don't come to know Christ to save you. They used to say of Dwight L. Moody, the sinners used to say of Dwight L. Moody, it's all right for Mr. Moody to tell us we're going to hell because he can't do it without weeping over us. Oh, do we enter into the fellowship of the Lord's sufferings? Hell's no joke. Hell's a real place. I personally believe it's in the center of the earth. And I believe it's a literal lake of fire and brimstone like the book says. 
The geologists discovered long ago that the center of this earth is a lake of fire and brimstone. The earth's thickest crust is only 16 miles. Some places the earth's crust is only 10 miles. You and I may be in 10 miles of the lake of fire right now. Who knows? And all men, women, boys, and girls who die without getting their sins forgiven will go to hell forever. Oh, that I, that you, might enter into the fellowship of the Lord Jesus' sufferings. He suffered. He suffered. In the presence of sin. He suffered. He suffered when he saw men misrepresent God to other men. He suffered when he looked into the face of men and women, knowing they're going to go to hell forever if they didn't get saved. Oh, that you and I might enter into the fellowship of his sufferings. You young graduates, God grant as you go out from this school, you'll go out fellowshipping in his sufferings. You members of the Tabernacle Baptist Church, you visitors here, oh, to God that this morning you and I would pray with Paul that I may know him, that I may know the power of his resurrection, that I may know the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Let every head be bowed and every eye closed. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if you're saved and know you're saved and not ashamed to say so, raise your right hand good and high. Don't even leave a crook at your elbow. Wave your fingers at me. Brother James, I know that I'm saved. God bless you. Hands down again. Second question to the same group. I wonder how many of you, as we've had these few moments of meditation on the fellowship of his sufferings, are conscious that you have not been entering as you should have into the fellowship of the sufferings of the Son of God. No, we can only fellowship in his substitutionary atoning suffering through the blessings we receive from him. But we can enter the fellowship of his sufferings in the presence of sin when we see men misrepresent God to other men and we look at men and women who are daily on their road to hell. We can fellowship with his sufferings in that sense. I wonder if there are Christians here say, Brother James, I've been going along not doing much about entering into the fellowship of the Lord's sufferings. Pray for me that I'll really enter into that fellowship. Could I see your hands? Yes, look at there. They're going up all over. Oh, God help you there in the quiet precincts of your own heart to tell him that you want to enter into the fellowship of his sufferings. There may be some here this morning who are lost.